Today, answers matter more than ever before. That's why IBM is helping businesses manage customer questions with Watson Assistant. It's conversational AI designed to work for any industry. Let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash Watson Assistant. Welcome to The Sporting Life with Jeremy Schaap. Over the next hour, Jeremy takes a trip through baseball history, including a conversation about one of the greatest players of all time, Yogi Berra. My father told me that this was one of the most dynamic baseball players he'd ever seen in his life. And that's not usually the way we think of Yogi. We think of Yogi, I mean, overshadowed by his persona. But he's so much better as a baseball player than I ever thought. I mean, he was the best player on the best team in baseball history. And a discussion about how Bud Selig brought baseball back to Milwaukee and changed the sports landscape. This idea of bringing the Seattle Pilots, it was, as Bud Selig tells it, the very last chance. And had that effort failed, there may not be big league baseball in Milwaukee today. And a whole generation of fans, including me, would either be Cubs fans or Twins fans or maybe just focused on the Green Bay Packers. Plus, the story of one of the greatest collections of hitters to not win the World Series, the 1995 Cleveland Indians. It was really a perfect storm of a team that had been built from the ground up years in advance, and then this franchise moves into this beautiful new ballpark in downtown Cleveland, and the timing could not have been more perfect. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Here's Jeremy Schapp. Welcome to another edition of The Sporting Life. By this time, we would be about a month into the Major League Baseball season. Opening day was supposed to be March 26th. And of course, there is no baseball, and we don't know whether baseball is going to be back this season at all, whether it will be back with no fans in the stands. A lot of permutations being discussed, but right now more uncertainty than anything else. But for the next hour, we'll talk about baseball history. We'll talk about baseball analytics with some of the smartest minds that have covered the game. We start with our old friend, the senior baseball writer at The Athletic, Keith Law. His new book is The Inside Game, Bad Call, Strange Moves, and What Baseball Behavior Teaches Us about ourselves. A lot to unpack there. Keith, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So Keith, first of all, let's start with the absence of baseball from our lives right now. Uh, you are someone whose life revolves around the game, who's always immersed in the game. What is this like for you? It's very strange. Certainly we are uh, at a point in the calendar where ordinarily I'd be finishing up draft scouting, hitting some minor league games, and starting to prepare mock drafts. The baseball draft is still tentatively scheduled for June 10th, but of course there's some uncertainty around when the draft will be or how many rounds it might entail. And so I'm in a holding pattern and feeling a bit sort of adrift in as much as the running joke is sort of what day is today. For me, it's sort of what month is it, right? I look outside and think I should be doing baseball, but there is no baseball for me. And that is as much as I appreciate the time home with the family, there's absolutely a poll there that says, no, you're supposed to be out watching players, writing the things. And it is very, very strange to not have that as a regular feature of my life, especially this time in the calendar. Yeah, and baseball is such a part of the rhythm of our lives. Once it gets started in late March, early April, and it's just there for the next seven, eight months. And, and I think people are really feeling the absence. I have a friend, 
uh, who's in his 60s, who is recovering from COVID-19 uh, right now. Uh, thankfully, he's doing well. And he's texting me every couple of days, when is baseball back? That's all he wants <laughs> is his baseball back um, because he's one of these guys who watches, you know, 150 games a year if he can. And he's a Mets fan, so he's a glutton for punishment. But it is it is so strange not to have it again. We're speaking with Keith Law. He is a senior baseball writer at The Athletic. And his new book is The Inside Game, Bad Calls, Strange Moves, and What Baseball Behavior Teaches Us About Ourselves. And, of course, when you were writing this book, um, we could not have foreseen the situation in which we find ourselves, but it's perhaps more applicable now thinking about baseball and the way we think about the game than it was before uh, the pandemic. What do you mean when you say that baseball behavior tells us something about ourselves, the way people in baseball behave when it comes to the business of the game? Baseball is very much a series of discrete events and thus a series of discrete decisions. So it's fairly easy for us to isolate specific choices, whether it's a managerial choice within a game or general manager's decision to maybe sign a player or trade a player or scouting director's decision on what player they're drafting, or even gener- more generally, what type of player to draft. And so it allows me to sort of go both ways. If you don't know anything about behavioral economics, it's not, at least when I was in college and I partially majored in economics in college, we didn't do a lot of this stuff. So I had to learn it all as an adult. If you don't know this stuff, I can explain a lot of these concepts, I think fairly simply, using baseball examples. Because how often in life do you have something like that where you can really isolate a specific decision or have fairly specific data on a series of choices made over a long period of time so you can look and say, this works, this doesn't. It really allowed me to, again, I think to make this material more accessible and at the same time tell some fun baseball stories. I love talking about old baseball decisions that did or didn't work. I loved delving through years of draft results to look at, okay, was it actually a bad idea to take a high school pitcher in the first round? Yeah, turns out it kind of is. That stuff, I always want to write books that I think I would like to read if I were on the other end. And this allowed me to do that, to tell fun, interesting stories from baseball history. But I hope Look at them through a lens that no one had looked at them through before. We're speaking with Keith Law, a senior baseball writer for The Athletic. His new book is The Inside Game, Bad Calls, Strange Moves, and What Baseball Behavior Teaches Us About Ourselves. Of course, the bad decision stuff is is fascinating historically. Uh, I remember I used to host a show on ESPN Classic, and uh, we would have some of the most distinguished baseball writers, sports journalists of all time on the show, guys like Leonard Coppett, who I guess is kind of the uh, the grandfather, is it fair to say, of analytics, not only in baseball, but also in basketball, somebody who covered the game in a way that kind of delved deeper. And, and we used to have a disagreement. Uh, we talk about, we did a segment once about what's the worst trade ever, you know, and there's always, uh, what is it, Ernie Brolio? I mean, I'm sorry, uh, it's Brolio for um, Lou Brock. Uh, Lou Brock, right? Yep. Uh, that, and I'd say, yeah, that's terrible. Uh, that's terrible, Leonard. But what about Amos Rusi for Christy Mathewson? <laughs> you know, the Reds traded 
Christy Matheson, right, who had not yet appeared in the major leagues, and he would go on to win, what, 373 or 383? I was, I think it's 373 games. For Amos Rusi, who'd been a great pitcher, but was washed up and won like four games for the Reds or something like that. And he said, well, that doesn't count because they couldn't have known that was going to happen. And I'm like, well, that's the whole point though, Leonard, but it, it still ends up. I, I don't know what I'm saying. I have no idea actually right now what I'm saying, Keith, but, <laughs> but what, you know, what does that, is that a terrible trade or is there a difference between terrible trades based on outcome, terrible decisions? versus it's known unknowns and unknown unknowns, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Absolutely. Well, one of the things you just got at there in the debate is outcome bias. And it seems to me like Leonard was probably falling in that particular argument for outcome bias, or I should say into the trap of outcome bias, which is one of the ones I discussed in the inside game, one of the many cognitive biases. And I think one of the easiest to understand, essentially outcome bias is judging an outcome, sorry, judging a process by the outcome or by the results. It worked, therefore it was a good idea. That's not true. That's what I'm saying. Right. Everyone can understand their own lives, right? You've had (laughs) something where you said, I did all the right things and it still didn't work. That's the difference between process and outcome. And I use the example in the book of Bob Brenly in the 2001 World Series when he was managing the Arizona Diamondbacks and did kind of everything wrong for seven games, but the Diamondbacks still won the World Series. Mm-hmm. So did Bob Brenly do a good job? <laughs> was he a good manager or was he simply a manager who was standing nearby when Randy Johnson and Kurt Schilling pretty much won the World Series for the Diamondbacks? I choose the latter. Bad process, good outcome. Do not let us fall into the outcome bias of saying Brenly's process must have been good because they won when we can look at the individual decisions with data, with actual evidence, and say, no, these were bad decisions. And individually, they may not have worked out. But on the whole, the series as a whole worked out for the Diamondbacks. And we can judge those two things separately. Keith Law, again, you can read him at The Athletic. His new book is The Inside Game, Bad Calls, Strange Moves, and What Baseball Behavior Teaches Us About Ourselves. We couldn't really do it justice in the time allotted, but I recommend it. Keith, thanks so much for being here on the show again. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Yogi Berra was one of the great baseball players of all time and one of the great winners in the annals of sport. But he meant more to people than just a great baseball player typically would. There was a lot of humor about him and some unintentional philosophy as well. Now, Lawrence Peter Berra is the subject of a new book by our old friend, one of the great sports journalists of our time, John Pessa. His book is simply Yogi, A Life Behind the Mask. John, thank you for joining us. Jeremy, it's my pleasure. John, I mean, uh, let, let me start by saying Yogi Berra is one of those guys, and I have like many people, tremendous fondness for him, and I think uh, an appreciation for him, probably more than most people, uh, having known him a little and growing up in New York, uh, being around him. What more do we need to know about Yogi Berra that we don't already know? Well, I'll tell you, um, first, the reason I, I did this book was my um, I got Yogi in 1960 when I was eight years old, and he was a, uh, a role-playing outfielder for very strong Yankee teams, very good role player, but a role player. My, he was my father's favorite player. 
And my father told me that this was one of the most dynamic baseball players he'd ever seen in his life. And that's not usually the way we think of Yogi. We think of Yogi, I mean, overshadowed by his persona. So I really wanted to go back just at the beginning and just look at this tremendous baseball player. And he was so much better. And I'm a huge baseball fan. But he's so much better as a baseball player than I ever thought. I mean, he was the best player on the best team in baseball history. Well, he won those MVP awards when the Yankees were winning all those World Series. They won the World Series in 49-50, 51, 52, 53. He was the MVP in 51, 54, and 55. And this is at a time that, uh, you know, Mickey Mantle was coming into his own. He was about to win the Triple Crown in 56. Ted Williams was still doing remarkable things. There was a lot of uh, tough competition in the American League, but Yogi Berra was the MVP in three of those seasons. What made him so great? Uh, two things. One, he was just a tremendous hitter, and right from the start, this guy was a 20-home run, 100 RBI, you know, 280 to 320 hitter um, out of the catcher slot where the catcher was expected to play defense and to call pitches, and that was it. And actually, for the first two years of Yogi's career, um, there was there was a very, very good chance he would have been an outfielder, not a catcher. And it wasn't until Casey Stengel came in and realized, if I have a hard-hitting catcher, um, then I have something special. And brings in Bill Dickey. They fixed mechanical problems with, with Yogi. The pitchers hated pitching to him in his first two years. Um, Dickey cleans up the mechanics, um, and Yogi now becomes almost overnight the best catcher in the American League and one of the true talents that I had no idea he had. He had a near photographic memory of, of baseball. And he could tell you, you know, how to get somebody out in the fourth inning with a man on second that we did it four and a half years ago. Um, here's the right pitch. And the players just, you know, turn, completely turned around because that is an incredible weapon to have. Plus, he was, as a fielder, he was, you know, as good, if not better than anyone. We're speaking with longtime sports writer and editor John Pessa. His new book is Yogi, A Life Behind the Mask, biography of Lawrence Peter Barra probably one of the 30 greatest baseball players ever to live and one of only a few uh, athletes in North American major sports history with as many as 10 championship rings. But when I think of Yogi, John, I think about um, some of the contradictions. You know, um, one of the great athletes of all time, but not in an athlete's body. Right. How did that lead people to uh, misjudge him in the beginning? I think that, you know, his body, uh, I'll tell you, there's, there's two, uh, one general, one specific part of it that literally changes baseball history. The, the, the general is you, you look at him and, you know, equipment managers, when he walked into his minor league teams, would give him a uniform, uh, to, a ratty uniform because they thought he was there to try out, not that he was part of the team. Um, he just didn't look like an athlete. He had a, a tall person's upper body, a short person's lower body, uh, long arms, big shoulders that hit his neck. Uh, but when he stepped on the field, um, he was just an incredible player. The guy who was, who was supposed to be the greatest judge of talent, in part because he could look at a 16-year-old and figure out what he was going to look like when he was 21, named Branch Rickey, greatest talent evaluator ever. He takes one look at Yogi and decides and tells him to his face, you're no more than a triple-A baseball player, and I need people who can go all the way. 
And so instead of a, a playing for the Cardinals, his hometown team, or when the Cardinals make the mistake, playing for the Browns, um, who, who then become the Orioles, and this drives Orioles fans crazy when I tell them that Yogi Berra in their, his prime would have been a catcher for the Baltimore Orioles. Um, he makes this gigantic mistake, and he loves Joe Garagiola, Yogi's best friend across the street neighbor, who literally is 6'1", 175 pounds, and absolutely looks like a baseball player, and is very good, but he wasn't Yogi Berra. The other thing, John, and we're speaking again with John Passa about his new biography of Yogi Berra, and, and as I tried to suggest in our lead, you know, the thing about Yogi Berra, it's not just the achievements on the field, obviously, but it's um, this aura about him. And, and and I was around him a lot. I, I interviewed him on a number of occasions, and there was this charm and this warmth about him, although he could be tough. But but um, people thought he was this guy, you know, uh, who had this endless stream of unintentionally funny one-liners and this kind of stuff. And actually, interviewing Yogi wasn't easy. Not at all. He wasn't somebody who actually fit. The way that people, people who didn't know him thought of him. Right. You know, his persona, his public thing wasn't the real yogi. Can you uh, explain that disconnect a little bit and why it exists? Well, I mean, definitely wasn't. Yogi was always um, a quiet, if not shy person. The only place that yogi felt 100% comfortable was on any ball field where he was always a uh, best player. And you could see through his life. The people who talked for him, uh, Joe Garagiola, who helped with yogiisms. Then it became Phil Rizzuto, another, you know, very talkative person. Um, his wife was eloquent. Uh, Ron Guidry later in his life be- becomes the, the, the yogi whisperer. And, uh, he, he was just naturally that way. He was also the youngest of four boys in a, in a, you know, in five kids in an Italian family whose father, you know, as as most fathers of that era did, ruled with with an iron fist, and you know I think he learned to be quiet that way because you didn't talk until you were you were spoken to, and his father was a man of few words. In fact, all of the all of the of the kids uh, in, in Yogi's family were, were quiet sorts. But I think too he faced um, a lot of discrimination because he was Italian, and he faced a lot of abuse because of his looks, because of his physical um, stature. Um, and because sometimes he would, you know, when he did talk, uh, mangle the language. And I think that Yogi just had such an appreciation for how it felt to be looked down upon. And he could never, ever bring himself to do that because he knew what it felt like. And, and that's, first of all, it's rare in people. Second of all, it's really rare among athletes. And Yogi was just this guy who liked and loved people. And I think people felt that and just felt instantly comfortable around him. You know, I saw this must be 20 years ago. There was a, there aren't a lot of baseball players who had one man plays written about them that were actually performed on Broadway. And I saw, I saw the Yogi show, Ben Gazzara. I mean, one of the great, you know, actors of the second half of the 20th century played Yogi and I did a story about it and saw the play. And, you know, I think Yogi never saw it because, you know, it took liberties with the real story. And a lot of it revolved around his relationship with Dale Barra and a lot of it, Dale, his son, who's been on the show recently. And it was about, um, you know, Dale's addiction. Okay. And, right. All, all that stuff. It is feud with Steinbrenner. That was mostly the reason that, um, and it was Carmen um, and, and unfortunately, this, his wife, Carmen. This, yeah. Yes, I'm sorry. Um, 
Unfortunately, this story didn't make it into the book. I ended up having to cut 60 pages of the book. But there's a terrific story of Gazara and the playwright coming to Yogi's house and talking about it. And Gazara figures, hey, I'm from Brooklyn. I'm a, I'm a you know, we're both Italian. We're gonna, and they did hit it off. Um, but Carmen uh, was against it from the start. Then they have a second meeting at his um, uh, museum where they're sitting there drinking vodka together, telling old stories about what it was like growing up during the Depression. And, you know, if it was Yogi, they would, you know, they would have blessed it. Uh, Carmen walks in, is very polite, very nice. You know Carmen. She was a charming woman. Um, and very politely and charmingly said, uh, I'm sorry, but we're not going to endorse this play. Mm. John Pess's new book is Yogi, A Life Behind the Mask. John, it's always a pleasure. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Hey, Jeremy, thanks for the time. I appreciate it. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. The Milwaukee Brewers would be celebrating now their 51st season in Milwaukee. Of course, we don't know when baseball is coming back. But the Brewers are the subject of a new book by Adam McAlvey, who has been covering them for MLB Dot com For decades, he is a native of the Milwaukee area, and his new book is The Milwaukee Brewers at 50, celebrating a half century of Brewers baseball. Adam, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, of course, Jeremy. Thank you for having me on. So I got to say, and I, I'm doing this with all due respect, but I, I was looking at some of the numbers, right? I mean, the Brewers, I think, you know, over their 50 seasons in Milwaukee have a winning percentage of about 48% which I think might be actually a little bit better than I would have guessed. And they played a total in 50 seasons. If my math is right again, I think of 30 postseason games. <laughs> and they've won one pennant, no World Series. Of course, that 1982 pennant lost in seven games to the Cardinals and Keith Hernandez and that whole story. It was Bob McClure, right, who gave up the hit to Hernandez in the uh, in the big game. Am I right? That's right. No Raleigh fingers haunts Bud Selig to this day. Right. So... You know, I I mean, you know, it's easy for somebody coming from New York, you know, where they've got 27 championships for the Yankees and before that the Giants and um and the Dodgers and and the Mets. Well, it's been a it's been a long drought for the Mets too, but we'll we'll talk about that another time. But, you know, people forget when you talk about Milwaukee baseball, outside of Milwaukee, they forget that there were some Incredible teams there yeah. in the 50s and early 60s. How long were the Braves in Milwaukee? What was it, 14 years, something like that? Yeah, never had a losing season. Um, led the major leagues in attendance on a number of occasions. First uh, National League franchise to draw 2 million fans. It was a town that fell in love with its baseball team. Aaron and Matthews and Spahn and Burdett. I mean, uh, it was, they had those great teams and they beat the Yankees in what was it? The 57 World Series, right? And then they, they decamp for Atlanta. What did it mean to Milwaukee to get baseball back in 1970? Of course, it meant that Seattle lost the team that it had for one year, as you already said. Yeah, it was the, that the city was big league again. Um, and, you know, it came at a time that Herb Cole had also brought the NBA to Milwaukee uh, just a, a year before, and it was a big boost for a town that was really heartbroken when the Braves left. You know, in, in reading about that, I, I'd always known the Braves left town. I never exactly knew the history of that, how a team that had been so successful at the gate and on the field, and as you said, 
had so many Hall of Famers suddenly decamped. And I learned through this research that one of the reasons Milwaukee lost the Braves was they uh, made a policy against carrying beer. And people were so horrified of the notion of having to buy their beer at the ballpark (laughs) that it led to some really hard feelings. I'm sorry, Adam. Only in Milwaukee. I mean, that's that's that is a great story. You know, can you picture wheeling your keg into the ballpark for for a ballgame? Now, look, it's more complicated than that, and I don't mean to oversimplify it, but that was certainly one factor. And really, before the Braves even decamped, Bud Selig was already trying to gather civic leaders. You know, he's around 30 years old at the time um, to try to first save the Braves. When that effort failed, uh, he turned his sights to bringing in almost immediately another expansion team. And, you know, he had so much heartache and close calls over and over. Uh, there was American League expansion during that period uh, between 65 and 70. Uh, there was National League expansion. He tells of watching Walter O'Malley announce the winner in mouth of a word that began with M and his heart lifted and uh, the, the word was Montreal and Felix's heart was broken again. Um, he had a deal to buy the Chicago White Sox from one of the Allen brothers. Uh, the other brother nixed that deal. Heart was broken again. So the way Bud Selig tells it, this idea of, of bringing the Seattle Pilots, who, as you said, lasted only one year, poor attendance, um, the ownership, uh, at least one member of the ownership was willing to part with the team. It was, as Bud Selig tells it, the very last chance. And had that effort failed, um, there may not be big league baseball in Milwaukee today. And a whole generation of fans, including me, would, you know, either be Cubs fans or Twins fans or maybe just focused on the Green Bay Packers. So it's a story of uh, close calls and sort of how, as Bud Seeley uh, used this line, how history can hang on such a thin line and impact so many people in the, in the decades that follow. And um, th- that is sort of a, a story of this franchise as well. We're speaking with Adam McCalvey. His new book is Milwaukee Brewers at 50, celebrating a half century of Brewers baseball. And you've got a foreword by Robin Yount, uh, the Hall of Famer, shortstop, center fielder. And off the top of my head, um, Robin Yount's easily the greatest player in franchise history, right? Easily, yes. Easily, easily. Um, was he, was he full time playing shortstop when he was 18 for the Brewers? Yeah, and it, again, a, a, a story of right place, right time. I think about that in my career sometimes, and how many of us have, you know, are where we are because of uh, sort of that that idea of just being uh, ready when opportunity strikes you. Um, Bud Felix tells the story of a real battle within their front office in 1973. Uh, when the Brewers had the third overall pick and uh, the GM wanted a pitcher from New York. Uh, the scouting director really liked a shortstop from Woodland Hills, California. And they battled and battled and battled. And it was ultimately the scouting director's call, Jim Balmer, who himself was an infielder who made it to the big leagues at age 18. Uh, he got to select Robin Yount. And, and the following spring, you're talking about 1974, the Brewers are still basically an expansion team. They've had very little success on the field. And they get to spring training. The manager was Del Crandall, speaking of the great uh, Milwaukee Braves. He was one of the core players of that team. And um, he decided, you know, why not give this shot to the kid? Um, and Robin Yount had impressed uh, at times in that spring. And they made the decision sort of near the end of camp that 
let's just give it to, let's give them a shot in the big leagues. And, you know, really it's, it, it took years for Robin out to become the, the hall of famer that he eventually became. It was really a four really disappointing seasons. Um, he set a club record as a rookie that probably won't ever be broken for errors in a season at shortstop. Uh, and really just, you know, didn't perform with the bat until about 1978. So, you know, would it, sometimes I think back when you look at players today in the social media age where everybody wants, you know, Mike Trout from the second he steps foot on a major league field, Robin Yount was four years of real struggle. And what would, what would he look, what would his career look like in today's game? Would it be different? Would they have the patience to stick with an eventual hall of famer? Sort of an impossible question to answer, but one of the, you know, one of the, the best things for Robin Yount was that he was able to learn on the job. The next year, the Brewers brought back Henry Aaron to Milwaukee. He was a fantastic mentor for Robin Yount. And, uh, Frank Robinson was also a great mentor for Robin Yount. Robin went down and played winter ball for a Frank Robinson team. And uh, Robinson took to this kid. It was, you know, the sort of a cool, calm Southern California guy. Robinson really liked him. And they'd have a couple of cocktails at the bar each night. And uh, Robin Yount says that was a, a phenomenal influence on his career as well. And, and he blossoms into really the face of this franchise, you know, Maybe it's Bob Euchre's team. Maybe you can make a case for that, a broadcaster being the face of the team. But uh, for if you're talking about players, there's no doubt that Robin Young is the man who defines this sort of uh, understated, blue-collar, uh, loyal sort of town. Uh, he's the player that he, – he's the face of this franchise. And I was just going to get to Bob Euchre before we let you go. And again, we're speaking with Adam McKelvey from MLB.com, who's been covering the Brewers for MLB for 20 years nearly. And uh, that's 40% of the history of the franchise. Tell me a Bob Euchre story, and then we'll let you go. Well, you know, his deadpan gets you. Um uh, you know, my favorite personal Bob Euchre story, there was a, a, a year, one of the early years I was covering the team where, you know, they weren't very good, as you said, for some of those years and in the 2000s. And they agreed to let Sports Illustrated follow the team for like a, a road trip. And it turned into just this nightmarish road trip. They lost every game, injuries, whatever could go wrong went wrong. But when the piece comes out in Sports Illustrated, there's this fantastic photo of the guys playing ping pong at the pool in, in Miami. Um, and in the background is Uke in a very, very stylish black Speedo. And this thing gets published in the magazine, and he, he took some ribbing for it. And I think it was like the next spring. We're just talking about it. And totally casually in conversation, this comes up, and he goes, oh, yeah, my sports illustrated swimsuit issue. And for some reason, that line just like stuck in my head forever. And, it, and it's those types of little things that you will drop on you. And, you know, you're not even expecting to laugh. And then you spend the next hour laughing about that thing you said. I've said many times, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a joy to cover the team. When your team that, that you follow makes it to the postseason, look, you're, you're agnostic about covering this team. You're doing the job as a journalist. But it's, it's, if you want, you know, when the team's good, it's, it's a good thing. You know, you get to cover huge games deep into October. It's a lot of fun. I've always said my team could win the next 10 World Series. Or, the, you know, I could cover the next 10 World Series and nothing will be as great a thrill as just standing around the batting cage with Bobby Euchre because he will just make you laugh 
Um, he's a total joy to be around. And, um, you know, I hope he gets to do it for a long time. This was supposed to be his 50th season uh, on the mic for the Milwaukee Brewers, his hometown team. Not exactly the way he envisioned uh, season number 50 going, but hopefully we get some baseball for him before this is over. That would be nice. Adam McCalvey's new book, The Milwaukee Brewers at 50, celebrating a half century of Brewers baseball. Adam, thanks so much for joining us. Good luck. Uh, good luck with the book. Jeremy, I appreciate it so much. Thank you. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. A quarter century ago, baseball came back to life in Cleveland after decades of dormancy. The 1995 Indians were an exciting team. They ended up winning the pennant, losing the World Series to the Atlanta Braves, and they are the subject of a new book, Cleveland Rocked. The Personality Sluggers and Magic of the 1995 Indians, written by Zach Meisel of The Athletic, who joins us now. Zach, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. All right. So, you know, I, I already kind of uh, gave away, uh, you know, um, the ending. They don't win. They lose to the Braves, that great Braves team that only won one World Series despite winning like 45 consecutive division championships. Uh, what's so fascinating about the 1995 Indians other than this remarkable collection of personalities and talents? Or maybe that is the most interesting thing, I should say. Well, you hinted at it because it was really a perfect storm of a team that had been built from the ground up years in advance. And then this franchise moves into this beautiful new ballpark in downtown Cleveland. And the timing could not have been more perfect where you have a team emerging from this 40-year slumber where they were the dregs of the league. They, were, they reached such a low point that they had a famous movie made after them, of course. And so That was Chariots of Fire, right? That was the Cleveland. Exactly. You know your movie history. <laughs> But but it's just the timing was perfect, and you had a city that was so desperate and so hungry for something to get behind. And not only do they have a winning team, but the fashion in which they won with all these walk-off victories and come-from-behind wins. And, yeah, the personalities where you had an imposing slugger in Albert Bell, colorful characters like Omar Vizquel and Kenny Lofton, savvy veterans who had been around the block. It was just the perfect mix for a city that was just waiting and waiting and waiting for exactly that. I mean, and, and this, this lineup, um, I mean, I'm looking at it now. I mean, Manny Ramirez in 95, when he's 23, hitting 31 home runs. Uh, you've got, as you mentioned, Albert Bell hit 50 that year, uh, with 126 runs batted in. Jim Tomey would end up being a 600 home run player and Kenny Lofton and Omar Vizquel and Carlos Baerga. And you've got Eddie Murray, uh, another future Hall of Famer. Um, Dave Winfield, another future Hall of Famer. All these guys making, um, contribution some larger than others obviously this incredibly exciting team what did it mean in cleveland to have a team after 50 years almost 50 years since its last world series championship in 1948 that team what did it mean to cleveland to have a team like this uh around well there's no better way to explain it than to say that two days after the indians lost game six and the Braves celebrated in Atlanta. The Indians returned to downtown Cleveland for a celebration with tens of thousands of fans packing the streets. 
and you know climbing onto traffic lights and lampposts in downtown Cleveland, and they lost. But it meant so much to that city to finally have something, some thread to get them through the summer and, and the early part of fall, um, which they, they had waited so long for that. And, and, you know, it came in, this is 1995 and the Browns left in 1995. So it was, it, it really was the start of something too. And I think, of course, fans were disappointed in the end result, but it had been so long and really most of the people who experienced that 95 team were not around the last time the Indians had made the postseason, 1954, when they didn't win a postseason game. They were swept in the World Series. So it had been since 1948 since they had a playoff run. So that's 47 years. Nobody remembered that. So this was the first time they could remember having something to keep them invested for six months. And, and so even with the end result, I think there was an appreciation for what that lineup accomplished, full of Hall of Famers or would-be Hall of Famers, should-be Hall of Famers. And a pitching staff that was pretty underrated, too. They just had all of the elements, and it just really galvanized Cleveland. I got to admit, um, and we're speaking with Zach Meisel about his new book, Cleveland Rock, the Personalized Sluggers and Magic of the 1995 Indians. And I know I should know this. I mean, I was covering baseball on a daily basis. I totally forgot that Oral Hershiser won 16 games for them. <laughs> I mean, I, I didn't realize. I mean, I remember Nagy, and I remember Dennis Martinez. uh Martinez won 12. He had a very good year for them. Nagy was, this is a typical kind of Charles Nagy, 16 and 6 with a 4.55 ERA. Um, but Hershiser, who was 36, went 16 and 6 with a 3.87 ERA. And Jose Mesa had 46 saves with a 1.13 ERA. Yeah, you think about you think about the hitters on those teams, but there there was some uh, effective pitching going on as well as they won 100 games. Yeah, no one ever recognizes the fact that they led the American League in ERA and they were really good at preventing walks and hits and you didn't have much traffic on the bases. And the hitters would tell the pitchers just just hold them. You don't need to throw a shutout. Just limit them to a few runs and let Albert Bell and Jim Tomey and Manny Ramirez and Kenny Lofton and Eddie Murray do their thing. Unbelievable. So, yeah, you can see if you look at the ages of the roster, it's really interesting because most of the roster was was built from within. They drafted well. They traded well. Uh, So you had young hitters in that lineup like Tomey and Ramirez. And then they when they knew that it was time to to hit the gas pedal, that's when they went out and they signed Dennis Martinez, even though he was 40 years old. They signed Eddie Murray, who was nearing the end of his career. And then right before the 95 season, they signed Oral Hershiser to be that, maybe the missing cog in that rotation. And Hershiser ended up having a fantastic season, and he was the MVP of the uh, ALCS against the Mariners. So, you know, it's funny. When I, when I think about the Indians from the mid-90s, you know, there was that you know, and it meant so much as well because there had been no World Series in 94. We haven't mentioned that. So it was kind of this unique circumstance too. People were hungrier for a World Series than perhaps, uh, they were typically because of what happened in 94. But two years later, in 97, they get to game seven, uh, against the Marlins and, and they, they lose that one. And when I think of the Indians of the 90s, uh, there's so much talent, but they don't 
quite get over the top. What what's what's the team that means more in the heart hearts and minds of people from Cleveland? The '95 team or the '97 team? Yeah, it, it's the '95 team for a couple of reasons. Number one, they they hadn't disappointed anybody yet, so that's what made that summer so special. Is it was all new and fresh, and this it was foreign to Cleveland fans who were used to the team being in the basement by June 1st. So that was one part of it. I think that's why people were more accepting of the end result, even though they weren't happy with it, obviously. Um, But in 97, that team didn't click until late August. They were treading water. They didn't have much of a division lead. In fact, they were trailing the White Sox for a while. And then they played a little better down the stretch. I think they won 87 games, kind of limped into the playoffs and just caught fire at the right time had some some clutch hits at some key moments in October to get to the World Series. But again, that's by that point, you, they lose in 95 in the World Series. 96, it was a first-round exit. So there was more of a sense of urgency, and I think fans were less forgiving, especially when they had the lead in the ninth inning in Game 7 in Miami and couldn't shut the door. Those Indians teams were fun to watch, and they were exciting to cover as well. I remember covering covering them in the 97 ALCS, I guess. But it was a little bit of a different team at that point. Anyway, uh, Zach, it's terrific of you to spend this time with us and share your memories. And his new book, Zach Meisel's new book, as I said, is Cleveland Rock, The Personality Sluggers and Magic of the 1995 Indians. What a collection of talent and character. Zach, thanks so much for joining us here on The Sporting Life. You got it, Jeremy. Thanks so much. Thanks for having joined us. I'm Jeremy Schapp, and this has been The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio. We're on every Saturday and every Sunday morning at 6 Eastern Time.